We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and not sure this is a great idea, is it? Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by our first returning guest. Uh, he's an activist for the Labour Party and for our future's sake. It's uh, Nathan Baroda. Welcome back to the podcast, Nathan. Thank you very much, Bill. Glad to be back. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to ask, uh, I know you've been uh, canvassing in uh, campaigning in uh, Warwick and Leamington. And obviously, uh, previously, this has been a before the last election, a seat held by the Conservatives. Do you have a feeling whether there is much uh, desire for it to return to the Conservatives? Or would you say that the support for the Labour Party is still quite strong in the constituency? Uh, It's an interesting question, because I I think the answer is that the support against the Conservatives is, is quite large. Uh, you know, around 60, 65 percent in, in my head hmm. are, are anti-conservative. And that manifested with a number of conversations I had on the doorstep. But it's just about whether, what, the way that the Remain vote splits. Hmm. There is certainly a solid majority for obviously, you know, party policy goes beyond on Brexit. Absolutely. But for the Remain party, there is a solid majority. But actually, the way that the Liberal Democrats have been so active in Warwick and Leamington, it's their number one target seat in the West Midlands. Um, means that we are at risk of splitting the vote and letting the Tories back in, despite there not being at all any enthusiasm for them, beside a, a sort of rump of, of 35%. Mm. And of course, some people have been uh, concerned over the date of the election, because of course, uh, one of the um, uh, strong parts of the uh, Labour majority in Warwick and Leamington is based around students. And of course, a lot of students will be going home and might not necessarily be voting Uh, in the election in the constituency do you worry that this will have uh, a potential impact on the result Uh, absolutely um yeah i mean warwick and leamington had an unbelievable swing of of over 10 percent in 2017 Uh, and a lot of that was was from students but not all of it you know a different batch Mm -hmm. of students has a totally new batch of students has come in uh, since the 2017 election um look we need to sign as many people up to postal votes as possible um but also you know Bear in mind that the academics who disproportionately do vote for, for Labour will still be around. Some students will still be around as well. Um, and also, you know, we do need to, to have the safety net of, of winning outside of, of students as well. Um, just to be sure that, you know, so we need to win in, in the Warwick area and parts of you know, North Leamington and, and Whitton, etc., where students don't live. Um, just to be sure of a majority anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, what's uh, been happening today, a great deal in political discussion, has been discussions over health policy. Now, the Labour Party has been um, discussing its health policy uh, today, and one of the elements that has come up as potentially occurring under a Labour government would be freedom of movement remaining in place for people who wish to work in the NHS. Now, how do you think this is going to go over for voters? Because, of course, there will be some people who might argue that any form of freedom of movement would be a, a betrayal of the uh, vote for Brexit, etc. How, how would you... Uh, what would you say to that? Sure. So just to answer firstly the, the question of betrayal, hmm. um, it's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, I don't... I think the coursing of political language and, and the way that Theresa May used, you know, the, the months and, hmm. and 
year after the the referendum to sort of make it into a culture war was certainly unhelpful. Mm. Um, it's worth considering that 48% of the country obviously voted Remain, but a decent minority of Leave voters voted uh, to have a close economic relationship, and obviously that included mm. free movement. All it needs is for there to be 4% of, of Leave voters, I'm sure there is, I'm sure there's a, a little bit more than that, who support the continuation of free movement. Uh, for there to actually be a majority, uh, so so I, I guess it isn't necessarily a betrayal of what of the people's will, mm-hmm. even if it is against what people voted for with Brexit. But the point is, I mean, you, you speak to a good point, which is that Remainers or anyone who wants or sustain the single market and you know maintain any level of close economic relationship needs to win the argument for free movement. Mm-hmm. We can't keep skirting around it. We can't keep you know Stephen Kinnock style throwing Article One One Two of uh, you know, ending free movement uh, in, within the single market. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and I also don't believe that we should be supporting, you know, restricting rights for, of of labour, but not of, of capital. I think that's absurd. Um, so, look, we, we need to make the case for free movement. I mean, to make the case that migrants disproportionately um, give money to the system and obviously have a cultural value, a social value. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we welcome people from, from all backgrounds. That's fantastic. But people responded to incentives in the economy and the migrants, immigrants disproportionately give money back, take money, um, you know, pay more taxes than, than take out in services. So we need to make that case and stop being afraid to make that case. Uh, I think that's where Ed Miliband failed in 20, 2015, was he failed to make a positive case for immigration. I think that's what we need to do based on culture based on economic realities and incentives. Uh, and actually, I think people will respond far better to that. Hmm. Um, another point that's also been raised in the discussions about Labour's plans for health care has been uh, whether a four-day week would be allowed for uh, staff in the NHS, whether they would want it or whether it would pose all this sort of thing. Um, do you think that a four-day week would be helpful to the health service? And if it did happen, do you think it would have a, a negative or a, a positive effect on the health service? So I think undoubtedly it would have a positive effect. Obviously, we need to recruit far more staff for the NHS, but the current staff, particularly junior doctors, are massively overworked and overstretched. And in turn, that has a, a detriment to a detrimental effect to the services that they provide and therefore mm-hmm. the, the health that we have. Um, so the question is actually recruiting more people, which isn't easy by any means, you know, from a non-party political perspective. It's not easy to recruit people. It's a, it's a long process, but we need to do that. Um, look, I think there's a lot of scaremongering about a four-day week. I mean, maybe it's better to rebrand it as a three-day weekend. Um, but it's it's likely going to be a second-term policy. So mm. even in a five, you know, if, if there was a Labour majority in, in a five-year fixed in Parliament's Act, it's going to take a, a very long time to implement. And whilst I'm very, very supportive of the policy, um those who are sceptical shouldn't worry about it uh, in the next parliament. Mm. Uh, it's interesting also to note that there have been comparisons in terms of uh, Labour's proposals uh, for increases of spending on the NHS uh, per year in terms of percent with uh, what the uh, Blair and Brown governments achieved in terms mm. of percent. Uh, do you think that this is a wise comparison to make or do you think that... Um, it's a bit unfair to compare what a government that may have to uh, rely on the support of other parties get legislation uh, through uh, would be able to achieve this to compare to the uh, majority governments that obviously we saw under Tony Blair uh, Blair and Gordon Brown. Um, 
so I hadn't seen that comparison, but yeah, I suppose it is fair in that, you know, the, the party would likely be going into coalition with um, the SNP, Plaid, the Greens, etc. Perhaps, you know, if worse comes to worst, the, Liberal, the Liberal Democrats do. We'll broadly, broadly be supportive of that. So I think we should feel comfortable making that pledge. Perhaps in the terms, I mean, the, the, the policy that Baron Brown had, which was raising national insurance contributions to fund it, was, was absolutely excellent. Mm-hmm. Led, to, led to a great improvement in, in, in health outcomes in our country. Um I think we should actually promise to some extent the three to fifty million pounds a week. I mean, it resonated so well during the referendum. Um, it's a figure that sort of balances sounding quite large, but also sounding, um, you know, you can sort of put a metric to it in a way you can't with this one point two trillion nonsense. Mm. Um, ultimately, though, I actually think the point that he's making is the money we give to the NHS is, is crucial, but it can't mm. be done in isolation, and there has to be a a, you know, far greater synergy with particularly social care, but also, um, you know, mental health services, homelessness, etc. It has to be seen in the round. And I think, of course, Labour has won the argument and the Tories rhetoric on that since Johnson has come in reflects that, you know, over a number of years we've won the argument, but we need to see it far more holistically than we are now. Mm. Uh, one of the uh, other points that has uh, recently come up and has been uh, quite prominent in the news has been how uh, the government has been de- uh, dealing with flooding in uh, Yorkshire and the Midlands. Uh, how do you think a uh, Labour government would deal with uh, natural emergencies like this, where people have been flooded out of their homes and, you know, dams have burst and all this sort of thing, differently uh, from the way that the Conservatives are currently dealing with it? Sure. So I actually come from from Bury, a place in uh, in Greater Manchester, which had very bad floods in 2015 um, after on the Boxing Day, and you know I, I know the consequences of, of what can happen. Mm. Look, it has to be about funding for the Environment Agency uh, and getting flood protections. Um, that's absolutely crucial, and there is a clear link actually between austerity, uh, cuts to the Environment Agency, and flooding, inevitably mm. so. Um, but also to to take this to a, a wider holistic point, it's got to be about the environment too. These are disproportionately occurring because of climate change, because of man-made climate change. Uh, and Labour's policy for a Green New Deal is superb. I was proud to have played a, an albeit small part in trying to deliver that at a Labour conference. Um, but, you know, it's changes to the environment that are fundamental uh, and flood defences should absolutely be a part of, of Labour's Green New Deal. Mm. Do you think that... Uh as you were talking about a holistic approach, do you think that the uh, problem is not necessarily just in terms of funding for flood defences, but also um, we've seen obviously a lot of houses that have been flooded because they were built on flood plains. Do you think that Labour should review the practice in terms of house, house building, whether uh, people can build houses on flood plains, and if they are able to build them on flood plains, what uh, particular restrictions they might have to adhere to? Sure. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that, that housing should take place on floodplains. We've got plenty of, of places, particularly uh, brownfield sites, urban areas and, and other areas which aren't floodplains that we could mm. build on. Um, it, it's just it doesn't sound very common sense to me. Mm. Um, now, something that you mentioned earlier is about the pre- uh, pressure of the Remain vote uh, in Warwick mm. and Leamington. And of course, we've seen uh, the formation of a Remain alliance between the Liberal Democrats, the Greens uh, and other parties. 
Do you think that this would be an alliance that Labour should have considered going into, or do you think it was right that Labour didn't consider going into some sort of electoral pact with those other parties? So quite controversially for my party, I'm a a big fan of tactical voting Mm. uh, and also electoral pacts. Now, we have loads of disagreements with the Liberal Democrats, you know, their their timing coalition being symptomatic of that, but their their general policies of, you know, capitalism and and partly neoliberalism. I mean, Swinson sometimes sounds like she's to the right of of Boris Johnson on the economy. Mm. We we have profound disagreements with them, but ultimately our our opponents are the Conservatives. So they're the the rivals who are going to form um, the next government. Now, we need to say, look, in the vast majority of seats, in 90% of seats, we're a national party, Labour should stand, but bear in mind we don't stand in Northern Ireland already uh, for mm-hmm. very sensitive particular reasons, but we've already made you know, made an exception there. So, you know, I, I don't want to pop people off from standing in positions where we're not close. So take Southport, for example. Mm-hmm. We came from third last time to a, to a very close second and could possibly win it this time, similar to Kipping Barnet, where we came from nowhere. But if there are seats like, um, you know, in the southwest. Richmond is the one that really annoys me because uh, we could have stopped uh, Zach Goldsmith from getting re-elected. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a the Lib Dems and Tories are getting forty five percent each. There is no chance we're going to win it. We should be far more pragmatic in that. In in a handful of seats, in five or ten seats, um, particularly in the southwest, South London, uh, where the Tories could gain it, uh, particularly the gains they made in twenty fifteen, perhaps have been reversed now, or perhaps. Um, Tories hold with a marge, with a small majority of the Liberal Democrats, we should stand out, we should look to me, because we want Labour MPs rather than Lib Dem MPs, but the priority is stopping Tory MPs. Uh, equally, the Liberal Democrats should be doing the same thing. Obviously, Canterbury is sort of uh, emblematic of that because of uh, the fantastic MP Rosie Duffield there and the tightness of the majority. Mm. But also, you know, think about in seats like um, Nuneaton, which would be decisive to, to stopping Boris Johnson from getting a majority, is... There is no reason for the Liberal Democrats to stand there. They are mm. so far behind, and the only way of stopping the Tory MP getting re-elected is by them standing down and backing Labour. So it is frustrating. Um, I know it's not popular because, look, we're a party, we're a family, we don't want to extend that to people we disagree with. But if the cost of that is allowing the Tories to get back in, it, you know, to win a single seat is worth doing. Because... Mm. They do so much damage to our country, as do the Lib Dems, but they do comparatively more, uh, and we need to stop them. So, as I said, I know it's not popular, but I think we need to be a bit more sensible when it comes to electoral pacts. Mm. Now, uh, one thing that has uh, perhaps strained relations between uh, the Labour Party in the rest of the United Kingdom and the Labour Party in Scotland has been the implication or perhaps suggestion uh, that Labour would go into government with uh, the SNP if they win more seats in Scotland or even if they retain the seats in Scotland. How much do you think that undermines Scottish Labour or do you think that it's just a reasonable assumption to make? I think it's reasonable. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Scottish Labour. Richard Standard is, is a great leader. But I actually do think we should give them far more autonomy um, and just allow Scottish Labour to basically be an, an autonomous organisation within itself. Um, and sort of the Labour Party becomes, takes sort of the Green Party model of becoming the Labour Party of England and Wales. Um, I.e. You know, it would still be the same party, but we would stand in, in English and Welsh seats, obviously aside from a few exceptions as I've mentioned. But... Mm-hmm. Um, Look, I don't like the SNP. I don't, I don't think they've governed Scotland well. I think they've imposed austerity, particularly on, on Scottish local councils. 
Um, and I do personally disagree with the Scottish independence. But, you know, if it's a chance of getting the Tories out and getting a, a government that we lead 100%. I wouldn't think twice about it. Um, I understand why Scottish Labour would, would be angry with that. But, look, if it was a hung parliament, our options are quite limited. Uh, mm. And I'm sure they, you know, Scottish Labour would be would rightly be, be far more annoyed if, if Boris Johnson got re-elected. Uh, so I see where they're coming from, but I, um, I'd happily go into a coalition with the Lib Dems, despite some disagreements. But mm. the SNP, though. Mm. Um, uh, now, you mentioned uh, the possibility of a hung parliament. And, of course, there is the possibility that uh, Boris Johnson might win this election and the Conservatives might, be, uh, might have a majority. Do you think that it would be appropriate in that circumstance for Jeremy Corbyn to resign as leader of the Labour Party? Look, it depends uh, on on that election result. If Boris Johnson gets a majority of of one or to ten, you know Jeremy has the the mandate from the members mm. twice. Uh, and look, if he wanted to stay on, um, I would be comfortable with that. But I think after having lost, uh, well, you know, he ran very tight last time, and but eventually didn't get into government. Um, if we weren't to win this time, just, you know, despite the the, the chaos of the Conservatives of a bit done for the past two and a half years, but also for the past ten. Um, I don't see if I can't see Jeremy staying. Hmm. Uh, now, an election that is certain to happen at some point, relatively soon, is the election of the deputy leader of mm. the Labour Party, and we've had uh, some names uh, coming out uh, recently. Uh, who do you think of? Any particular politician in the Labour Party, whether they be the people that have suggested that they would be uh, likely to run or not, who do you think would be the best deputy leader of the Labour Party? So it's an interesting question because it it basically depends on whether or not there's a change to leadership because mm. it's a bit like you don't want to use your top Trump in a deputy leadership if you know if you get what I'm saying. So mm. what I'd quite like to see in, in one form or another is Angela Rayner and Rebecca Long-Bailey mm-hmm. um, take over the, the leadership of the party. So whether I'd, I'd be on fuss as to whether one would be leader or deputy leader. If one were to you know, be leader and the other to be the chancellor, mm. um, that would be fine. Don Butler is also an excellent choice. Um, I think it's really important that we have women leading our party. Mm-hmm. I think it's an embarrassing right now that, that we haven't had a woman leader. Um, but particularly, I'd like to see Angela Rayner and Rebecca Long-Bailey in positions of power. You know, strong Greater Manchester women uh, mm. who who would challenge Boris Johnson robustly, and and I think would absolutely definitely lead us to a majority. Mm. Uh, now, uh, one thing you mentioned there is that you obviously uh, like to see uh, women at the forefront of the Labour Party. Now, one of the uh, proposed uh, compromises going back a couple of months was the idea of having uh, two deputy leaders. Uh, male candidate and a female candidate and some people uh suggested that that might be somewhat tokenistic what do you feel about that no i'd, I'd feel absolutely comfortable there um you know having reserves places for women is really important because disproportionately when they're not they are filled by men um mm. so I, I don't you know i i'm it only really affects mediocre men who who aren't going to get, you know, who, who who could only win in certain circumstances. So no, I absolutely think that uh, we should be promoting women in leadership. And if that requires reserve places, we should absolutely be in favour of that. Um, if we get to a stage where it's happening automatically, then, then fine. But I'm absolutely comfortable with it. 
uh, as it is. Uh, now, <clears throat> one of the uh, other great concerns uh, of the election, one that has been uh, brought up recently uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was in Glasgow and he was accused of being a terrorist sympathiser by a, a Scottish uh, Church of Scotland minister, is defence. How do you think uh, Labour will be able to convince people to support them who may have concerns about Labour's defence policy or maybe have concerns about uh, Jeremy Corbyn and whether, uh, as some may suggest, he may be a a, a risk to national security? How do you think Labour can uh, convince those people to vote for them? Sure. So two things, uh, and they're two things that are fundamental to Jeremy Corbyn's politics, is firstly anti-colonialism. Uh, is his critique of Western foreign policy is actually quite in keeping with with the vast ways of the public. Uh, And we saw that in the wake of the Manchester attack. So I think um, that's absolutely something that, you know, we should be a firmly anti-colonial party uh, and that should guide our our foreign policy. Um, I think in turn, obviously, foreign policy and and defence are are intertwined. Mm. Uh, And secondly, another part of Jeremy's politics and part of the party that he's transformed now is about being anti-austerity. Now, the way that veterans are treated in the country, you know, increased homelessness is, is an absolute disgrace. Mm. And that's because of austerity. You know, the, the way that cuts to, to wider defence organisations, whether, you know, you agree with them or not, um, you know, the cuts aren't being made out of opposition to, you know, to colonialism or, or imperialism. They're, they're made because of austerity. Mm. So if we have defence organisations that we want to keep, I can't think... Uh, off the top of my head, I know, I know the MOD's been cut quite decisively, if you want to keep mm-hmm. parts of that, then, you know, let's fund it properly. Let's not do what the, the Conservatives have been doing, which is talking the talk on saying Corbyn's a risk to security, whilst also cutting the police, cutting the army, um, and, you know, taking us on, on unnecessary wars around the world. Mm. Uh, now, obviously, another uh, point regarding foreign por- uh, policy that will be uh, quite important during this election will be whoever uh, of the two main parties uh, wins, we're making the presumption it will be the two main parties, but I think it's a fair one, uh, they will obviously be going forward with uh, a, a policy for Britain to maybe leave the European Union or perhaps stay given Labour's policy. But if uh, we do see a Labour government uh, with Brexit at the same time, the Labour Party will be facing uh, making deals with other countries like the United States of America. How do you think uh, a Corbyn-led government would deal with any sort of like trade negotiations with the United States? So I'm actually not sure that that situation will occur because mm. um, obviously yeah, Labour Party policy is for a people's vote, but also mm-hmm. the, the choices on that would be between Remain, obviously in which that mm. wouldn't happen, but between a the alternative would be a, a softer Brexit, which would involve a customs union. Mm-hmm. So actually, I'm actually not convinced that there would be any third-party trade negotiations. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the implication of of that soft Brexit deal winning is that there would be negotiations with the EU eventually. You know, particularly focused on the on the future partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not convinced that that would be particularly a, uh, an issue in the next Parliament. How do you think? Uh... The relations between, leaving aside trade negotiations, how do you think the mm. relationships uh, between President Trump and Prime Minister Corbyn would go? What, how do you think the special relationship would work with those two quite polar opposite figures representing mm. their respective countries? 
well, hopefully it will only last for about 13 months um, <laughs> until Trump is decidedly beaten by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Hmm. Um, look, you know, for, for those remaining 30 months, I would, you know, I know this sounds different to the sort of rhetoric you, you get, but I quite hope it was hostile. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that we should be, you know, pandering to Donald Trump in in the mm. way that the Theresa May did, Johnson has, and, and Macron has as well. Mm. Like we we should be robustly challenging for what he does, and the special relationship is, you know, I think it's a naive foreign policy. I don't think mm. they're that bothered about about the UK anymore. But they might have been, you know, there's a sentimental reason, obviously, uh, and perhaps more of a, you know, close links in the Cold War, but. I'm not convinced that America aren't leading us on in that way. Mm. Uh, what I would like to see, though, is if particularly Sanders, but also, also Warren, were to be elected, to have that that great consensus between you know socialist leaders on either side of the Atlantic leading the way mm. um, about how to you know challenge the economic order. I think that would be that could build a new special relationship, and that would be one that I would that would absolutely love to see. Mm. Uh, if we did see uh, a president. Warren or a President Sanders, uh, how do you think um, the shared values that um, a Prime Minister Corbyn and a, a President Sanders and a, or a President Warren would have would influence the the rest of the world? Do you think we would be seeing more of a um, more socialist uh, parties coming to power in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world? Do you think we would see a, a, a softening uh, of approach to perhaps some certain conflicts in uh, the Middle East where America and Britain in the past have been a bit more uh, aggressive. How, how do you think the world would, would change with those leaders? Mm. So I think I separate the two back into into conflicts and, and the economy. Uh, I think absolutely there would be a scaling down of conflicts because America has been the decisive actor in, in propagating those, you know, thinking uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. Mm. Um, so I think that would absolutely scale down on countries like France, obviously, who were, who were far more sceptical about Iraq, um, and Germany and other leading, you know, people, particularly on the on the Security Council, would be far more sceptical about going to war because there isn't that American backing with, if Warren or Sanders was to be in charge. Uh, in terms of um, the economy and how that would impact uh, the rest of the world, it's a, it's a far more interesting question. Um, I'm not sure if there would be an effect outside an election. So, say, you know, whereas... Macron might say we're not going to go to war in whichever country next because President Warren has said we're not. Uh, I think he'd be far like left likely to say let's you know nationalise this and obviously France has quite a lot of nationalised industries, but let's nationalise this because Elizabeth Warren has done it. Where it could have an impact though is by setting an example and by you know showing to the public in other nations this is what happens when the economy is owned by people rather than you know motivated by people rather than profit. Mm. and really showcase a new economic model. And it's an interesting point because neoliberalism was inaugurated by, you know, it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but the two countries that are far more, are far most associated with it are, you know, with Reagan's USA mm-hmm. and Thatcher's UK. Now, if there was to be a new economic model that transformed along the lines I've talked about, that ended neoliberalism, replaced it with something far more equitable, um, you know, and, and that was to be led by, um, Prime Minister Corbyn or, or another Labour leader and a US President like Sanders or Warren, then I think that would set an example to try and create that hegemony uh, for other countries. But obviously they have democratic processes and if that was to be rejected, that's to be rejected. It's about proving that it works 
uh, and trying to challenge that established conventional wisdom that there is no alternative to neoliberalism. Mm. Uh, we've recently uh, had a general election in Spain, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on the new um, coalition between uh, Pedro Sanchez and Podemos. How, how, how do you feel about that? Do you think this is a, a step forward in the in the right direction for Spain? Sure. I mean, Podemos are an anti-austerity party. I have to be honest with you, I don't follow um, Spanish politics too closely, mm-hmm. um, but I, I'm aware of that Podemos, they, they are good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think no, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, pretend that I know everything about Spanish politics at all. Um, but look, the point is, we were looking at in 2015, 2016, uh, although this probably starting a little bit earlier and with the European Parliament elections of 14 is the the rise of populist right alternatives. Uh, and they were doing very well back then. And I think in the past few years, particularly after 2017 we've seen after you know trump's election we've seen um you know that tide has stopped to some extent and it Mm. certainly looks far less insurgent and actually the great irony is a lot of this emanates from the crisis of capitalism of the 2008 financial crisis but also to some extent individual domestic political crises and a lack of faith in politicians Mm. um the answers though were decisively responded to by the by the far right um, in those countries uh, and they unfortunately were far better at communicating the responses than, than the left were um, but I think actually they're, and they've been exposed um, you know the, the centre-right as well you know look mm. at France and hopefully us in a few weeks and a number of countries across the world is it's been proven it's been shown now that the centre-right and capitalism don't have the answers to to the problems of 2008 and you know the and it's I'm glad that the tide is sort of starting to shift uh, towards towards socialist alternatives. Mm. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast now. It's been great to have you on again, Nathan. Uh, it's been a great conversation, fascinating conversation. Thank you, And uh, I would like to just ask you one final question. Uh, today, the winner of the Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards 2019 has been announced. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you with an animal? Ooh, um, okay, I've, I've now got an answer. I wasn't expecting that as a question, to be honest, Will. <laughs> um, but I, I fell into a, a pond full of tadpoles when I was quite young, uh, which was which is a great shame. Um, <laughs> so, I, I don't know, are they, are they too small uh, to, to count as a, as a proper... No, 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 I, I, think they, I think they can count, uh, yeah. If you... <laughs> it wasn't very deep, though, luckily, so I'm, uh, luckily yeah. I'm, I, I can retell the tale. Yeah. Uh, and, and look at it not as a as a traumatic incident hopefully uh absolutely yeah uh, well uh thank you for being on the the podcast you're more My than pleasure. welcome uh, to come on again any other time thank you very much well thank you for having me it's been great to have you uh if you would uh, like to subscribe to the podcast you can do so on itunes you can do so on uh, spotify and youtube if you'd like to follow us on twitter you can follow us at debated podcast if you'd like to email us you can email us the debated podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.